Hey, and welcome to Product Journeys. I'm Frank Leisner. And I'm Lachlan Robertson. We're both product owners stumbling our way through our product journey. We're out to meet amazing product people and learn a bit more about their skills and their experience. Today, we're going to chat to Stacey Scott. Stacey has worked in tech for 12 years, starting out as a grad, spending months writing functional specification documentation before a developer would even write a line of code, to now coaching product practitioners and supporting multiple products in her current senior product manager role in the Connected Workplaces division. She has a passion for people leadership and proactive comms and suggests you tune into this episode for the product opportunity of a lifetime. Welcome along, Stacey. It's really nice to have you. I guess we'll kick off with your product journey or how you've got to where you are today. Awesome. Yeah, I guess I have worked in tech since the start of my career out of university. It was first at an e-commerce company, which specialized in e-com platforms for small to medium-sized retailers, and they were predominantly focused in the fashion space. I was there for a couple of years, and then one of my clients poached me to be the e-com manager. So I learned heaps about conversion optimization and managed to earn them their first million online, which is pretty exciting. From there, moved into a digital project management role at the Warehouse Group. For those outside of New Zealand, that's New Zealand's largest retail group. As all kind of large businesses were doing at that time, McKinsey came in and digitally transformed us as a business. So overnight, I went from a digital project manager to a product owner. I had no idea what that role meant, but that was fine. I was lucky enough, I had a really amazing agile coach as part of that transformation. And I was also reporting into a new manager who was a very experienced product consultant. And the two of them really took me under their wing and they really taught me a lot during that process. It was pretty challenging. Both of my teams were remote in Vietnam. So learning a new role, there were time zone barriers, there were language barriers, but we found like Slack was like a particularly instrumental tool for the success of those teams offshore. So I stayed in the product owner role and then eventually became the product manager of the warehouse and the warehouse stationary e-commerce platforms, where I guess I ran more A-B tests on an add to cart button than I, than I really cared to confess. And from there, I was wanting to trial something, I guess, outside of retail. I've been in there for quite a few years at that point. So ended up taking a product and delivery role as a at a solar as a service startup based in Auckland. Did that role for about a year and then I was promoted into head of digital. So that was sitting across multiple digital teams in the business and acquisition and web team, a Salesforce team and our own in-house software team that we built a platform which developed managing smart charging of users' batteries and the usage of the energy and we calculated savings values when they're using like our product compared to traditional energy retailers. So my role there was I'm yeah, glad it was you really expanded focused. upon that. Because I was like, <laughs> what is so- what is solar as a service? <laughs> um, it's a good question actually. Our customers instead of paying for the hardware up front, they paid a service fee. So we'd install the battery, install the panels and they'd pay a monthly service fee in any energy that they used or earned themselves was theirs. So our software was making sure the battery was charging at the right time, discharging at the right time. They were using their home automation at times that were optimal for power usage. So yeah, it's a pretty innovative space. It was pretty cool. It was a great idea for a product. Kind of modeled off something that was working particularly well in the States at the time. Is it still in New Zealand and going off? I've never heard of it and it seems like something that should be pretty relevant now. Yeah, there's quite a few challenges 
with the the hardware and stuff at the time, particularly with COVID, getting the batteries and the panels and stuff into New Zealand. They're still operating at this time, but America had solar tax benefits and that kind of stuff that we don't really have in New Zealand. So less cost effective to run as a business here as opposed to in the States. Awesome. Been in, into zero at some point. Yeah, I mean, that, that role was really a blend of people leadership, instilling product practices, managing stakeholders and external partners, but I was really missing true product work. I was really struggling to influence as a sole product leader in the business. It was a very founder-led, hippo, kind of through the pipeline type way of working. And so I was struggling with that and didn't have a lot of product support in the business. So started looking for companies at that point that had really strong, true product practices. And so obviously... Zero, as you both know, is, is really great for those things. Yeah, initially took the role as the expenses product manager before moving into my current role, which is senior product manager. And it's a, a blend of product and people leadership. So I manage four, soon to be five, if anyone's interested, product owners and product managers across our program of work. I feel, yeah, very fortunate to have landed where I have. Nice. You used Hippo before. That's the highest paid person influencing decisions idea. Is that right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, the kind of startup it was the person in charge of running the business was the founder at the time, very embedded in the business, very creative, very clever ideas, but no amount of validation or good product practices could sway that direction. Became quite disempowering, I guess, as a product person, more of a delivery function, I would say. It became really. Yeah, that makes sense. And and you mentioned earlier that you've worked in fashion as well and e-commerce and now i guess zero so a variety of different industries have you had a, a favorite within that or have there been parts of those that you've enjoyed more than others i mean working at a software company you don't get the old invites to the fashion shows so i really loved that when i was younger it felt very exciting but over the years it's very clear to me that working on a true software product has immense benefits in terms of being a product practitioner working on legacy e-commerce out-of-the-box e-commerce platforms that are supported by many old systems it's very hard to to change some of that it's not a lot of creative product work i suppose so i mm-hmm. think working on a something that is like software as a service has definitely been like my favorite industry like i can't imagine i would move out of that for quite some time if ever yeah yeah and you said it's so interesting going from digital program manager to product owner in that sense. You had no idea what product was at that stage, right? But were you doing a similar role as the digital program manager? And how does that overlap? I was doing a very similar role. I was just knee deep in Jira every single day. We really just had this huge giant backlog and I was organizing as opposed to sprints, I was organizing releases. So the premise of the work was very similar, but the product element was missing in the sense that there was no mapping of opportunities there was no discovery we had a pretty good insight into our, our user but it was just a huge disorganized backlog at the time really if i'm looking back and i'm perfectly honest i suppose that's one of the key skills for i guess junior product owners really that backlog prioritization this is the first step into it it's kind of perfect yes just delivering the tickets was enough of a thrill at the time i'm despite whether it was the right thing or not to deliver <laughs> And you said you had two remote teams in Vietnam. I mean, a lot of people remote now, but were there challenges apart from the time zones there that you had that you've been able to use now in COVID time? I think it was at a time where remote working was very unheard of. And we did have a bit of a language barrier and 
potentially technology that we were, we were using was not very good and it was very, very hard to facilitate and run meetings. So there was no Miro at the time, but we did get very good at written documentation. So using Slack to validate acceptance criteria, or I hate to admit this, but drawing up things in paint and sharing them in Slack so everybody was on the same page. We had very limited design resource, believe it or not. I think it was just yeah, understanding the power of clarifying things in the sense of acceptance criteria and UI and UX designs is really, really helpful. I suppose that's bringing everyone onto the same page. I completely forget that things like Miro have only become a thing more recently, which is, I can't imagine a world without Miro. <laughs> yes. So just playing back part of what you were talking about in the earlier stage there, from what I'm hearing, very delivery focused. And then obviously now being a senior product manager transitioning more to i guess the outcomes was that a, an easy transition to get into that or did you find there were challenges you had to overcome yeah it was quite a relief to be able to have all of these tools and frameworks that you've been trying to educate and socialize and influence broader stakeholders to come into a place where those were widely accepted was very refreshing for me but I definitely learned a lot from the product practitioners around me when I first came in at that role coming to zero having access to a customer research team was amazing I really leveraged them when I first joined zero and I learned the power of that data I could speak to my team confidently because I'd seen that data firsthand and I talked to that customer firsthand that was a very valuable tool I suppose in coming into a definitely a more outcome focused business as opposed to a just get this done business and then product manager is a term that we, we've been talking about a little bit. How would you describe that to somebody who had, would have no idea what a product manager is? It's very hard, isn't it? I can really kill, I guess, a dinner party conversation trying to explain. To, to non-technical people, I often just loosely explain it as strategy for software products. And that's usually enough for them to go, oh, cool, 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 cool. Um, for, I guess, people that are more interested, I often detail it out as more understanding users, understanding the market, understanding business needs for like a particular piece or part of software, and then uncovering and prioritizing opportunities that will best support growing that product, but also maintaining that product or that piece of software. Strategy for software. I haven't heard that one yet. I quite like it. <laughs> it's very unsuccinct and it's usually, yeah, sounds sufficiently boring, I think. I am interested to dive further into that, though. For you in product land, what does strategy mean? Oh, wow. That's a loaded <laughs> question. Jokingly, within our portfolio, we've said we've referred to the V word being vision and the S word being strategy because we've got ourselves into, not necessarily into trouble. Obviously, zero is very human. There's, there's no trouble culture, but what I've learned is that our interpretation of particular vision strategy across Sierra is very, very different. For me, I suppose the vision is the big aspirational thing that we want our product to be. And strategy is more of a plan on how we get there is typically how I've aligned around it in the past. I guess in product or in software, we are very good at adapting to new information, taking new information on, changing or modifying our plans asserted, whereas I think other industries have a much more rigid view on strategy execution. So I think as product people, we get very good at adapting and refining and improving things as we go, especially in regards to things like strategy, but other industries not so much. It's very, very, very rigid. Especially e-commerce where it's, I think, a lot about sales. So, because you said, yeah, conversion optimization, is that what it sounds like it is? <laughs> what actually is conversion optimization? 
once people are on your site, you have one one goal really. Well, the main goal is to get people to check out and to create a transaction. And there's just a bunch of best practice trying to test the things that really work, like having things in certain areas of the page and putting things in certain colors and having certain flows that people are familiar with. But over the years, I guess the more ingrained we get in the way you do it, the less creative it became, I found, over the years. At the start, you could kind of experiment and figure it out, but people are so accustomed to shopping online in a really certain specific way now in certain funnels that if you deviate too far, it just gets all a bit hard. And it's very, it's a very sensitive process. Slight things like time lag or not being able to find the button or having to scroll too far is abandonment. So yeah, just tiny, tiny ongoing optimizations to help drive that. One of the hugest impacts that we could make in warehouse group space was offering payment methods. And that was really based around our user type, families, people managing budgets, stuff like that. We found that being really flexible with our payment options could really, really make a big impact. So there was some, still some good user thinking in terms of solving problems in spaces like that. Because one of the terms I've heard, the pirate metrics around acquisition, activation, retention, revenue, oh, and referral. That's the whole idea, right? It's just about the funnel and how do you get as many people in and then out the other yeah. end of it. Yeah, 100%. Like, get them in, get them in your database, get them checking out and get them continuing to check out and continuing to make purchases. Mm. Yeah, interesting. What about that one? <laughs> yeah, sorry. Is it, I don't know about either of you, but I don't often talk about that within zero. And I don't know whether it's because of where I am within zero in terms of the space. Yeah, and our space and connected workplaces, particularly with our products with commercial metrics attached, like expenses, we definitely track attach rate we track things like the rate of activation and then we also look at things like detach rate so i guess we're tracking similar funnels in that space the uh, interesting part with zero perhaps is the timeline for people joining and signing up as well i, I know as a business obviously we care about the lifetime value that a customer brings etc but I, I hadn't thought about it within the specific subsets of add-on products or additional things that people can use that's obviously really important for us to understand but obviously there's the other part of it as well that i think maybe framework hasn't come up as it's not always about the numbers right for us it should be about how do we best add value to our customers and and solve problems for them and then the flow on for that is they stick around and give us more money to help us do more things but that in my mind, shouldn't be the main driver, right? <laughs> no, yeah. and I just think it's fascinating that actually it doesn't come up and, and I feel like it should be something within our metrics, but I, I don't know whether it's very easy to break that down. It's so integrated into the product that it's really hard to say, if we make this change, we're going to see a shift in sales here for this reason. Because, yeah, I find it so fascinating that it's it's obviously incredibly important. So, yeah. Yeah, I think that, that attribution model is an ongoing challenge with product, even in the space like expenses, there's so much going on market, broader context, macro trends that even if there is a particular fix or feature that's gone out, it's, it still could be hard lagging indicators to really attribute any kind of commercial increase to that particular release at times as well. So it's, I think it's very challenging in, in probably all areas of software, I guess. Yeah. And I think even things like the customer satisfaction net promoter scores that we track as well, there's fluctuations within that that may be because of our product, but may just be because we're entering a recession type of thing and life is hard, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Really interesting. I'm going to switch gears a little bit and dive into some more product related questions. We've talked a little bit about 
strategy being one of the things in the product toolkit, maybe even understanding funnels. Do you have any other go-to frameworks or product skills that you draw on or use regularly? Yeah, I'm not so sure I'd call it a tool, but I think risk mitigation or like a risk registrar is something I consider really critical to almost any initiative that we work on, whether it's a people-related initiative or a product-led initiative. In terms of risk, uncovering, documenting, managing, and especially communicating those is super valuable from more from an expectation management perspective. I think that's like a key role of a product manager is to make sure expectations of our stakeholders are managed well and really thinking about risk, understanding the risk that's involved is a really important part of that. That I've honestly hasn't come up in the conversations we've had. That's quite refreshing to hear that. And my follow-on an assumption here, the reason that a risk register is important is if there's things that are going to sink your product or mean that you can't actually achieve the outcomes you're looking to, you need to know about those things and decide whether you want to do something about it. Is that... Yeah, I think that's it. It's understanding the size of that risk. Maybe it's small enough that you can you can live with it and there's no action. Maybe it's large enough that you need to put a bit more of a detailed plan together and communicate that plan. So I think it's got all sorts of benefits in terms of our end users and how they experience the product, in terms of our stakeholders, in terms of how the team is feeling and how safe they're feeling and building trust within one another. Just having that stuff really transparent and managed is, yeah, is always beneficial. Definitely. I've done a few risk, I guess, risk mitigation plans, but they've never really had to use any of them. Have you had a situation where you've actually had something come up and you're like, okay, let's go back to the plan and what did we say we were going to do or what do we do now? Um, oh gosh, I can't think of any particular examples. I'm sure we definitely have. I think a lot of the time Often with people initiatives, I find these particularly valuable. Are we looking to mix around our pods or change the people that work together? Are we looking to split our team into more work streams? That kind of change in particular, thinking about the human element and making sure we're managing risk really carefully about our people is probably the area where I've seen that almost more valuable. It may seem small to us, but people are really enjoying who they're working with day to day and we change that. Or they're really enjoying the part of the product they're working on today and we change that. How, How do they feel about that? So... It's often a tool I think that is equally as useful for people initiatives as it is for product. What I'm sort of hearing there, it's a tool that you would use as early as you can in the process. And then if you need to refer back to it. Yeah, correct. Yeah, that's right. And even if people are talking about new features or rollouts or launches, I guess as stakeholders, we will be encouraging to think about what are the key risks with this launch? Have you documented them? And maybe we can, as product leaders, highlight risks around comms overload to customers at the moment with so much noise going on and maybe we should think about timings and just thinking about that stuff all up front and not just thinking about what are the technical things that could go wrong is a good thought process to go through. As far as quantifying the impact of those risks, so for me, deal with security risks within their platform and they use the impact and severity, I think, as their accesses in a way. Is it yeah. similar to how you would approach product risk. Yeah, that's right. I think I think there's a, a standardized risk assessment that we've started using within our portfolio in the past year that I think has been used more broadly across zero. So yeah, very similar. How confident are we are in this bit of work? What's the size of risk? What's the propensity for this risk to occur? Awesome. I hadn't really thought about using it so much for people so much as product releases. So I can see how useful or valuable that would be for sure. 
Cool. I'm going to move us along a little bit and intrigued at what your biggest lesson is that you've had on your journey so far or a big lesson. Nice. Good question. I think what I've learned over the years and especially after landing at zero that the work you're doing really trumps the role that you have. It can be very easy as a really ambitious product person or someone starting out and trying to grow their career. It can be very easy to focus on roles and titles and that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, the work that you're doing speaks far more for itself than the name of your role. So picking a role in a company that I think enables people to do the best work of their life gives you heaps more value and heaps more confidence than any role title will. And I guess... I learned that lesson firsthand myself. I switched companies and switched roles for what could be perceived as a demotion. I had friends like, oh, you're going from like a, a head role into a this role. How do you feel about that? But being able to do really, really good work with really, really good people has exponentially enhanced my skill set more than having a title ever, ever would have. That's super cool. What particular things do you really enjoy in your day to day? everyone says this I'm sure I'm sure that the people that we work with here at Zero are just the best people I've ever worked with every interview I'm in when the candidate says what's the best part about working in Zero I think the panel unanimously says the people I love coming to work and just meeting with these really human smart intelligent people that are not afraid to challenge and can do it respectfully and just really really want a good outcome for our users it's just the most refreshing thing that I've found I would be on that panel saying the same thing. And I remember that's what everyone told me when I when I was interviewing as well. And that's another reason why I'm here too. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's hard to diverge from that. I wish I wish I had a more creative answer, but that's really yeah. it. It's okay. We'll accept it. it. It's really interesting for me what you said about the the title thing though, because I, I know certainly in different cultures like the American business world, having, you know, the VP title of whatever, that's such a sought after thing that matters so much but interesting for the playback title isn't everything and it's actually about what you do in your job that matters and how much impact you can have yeah having those experiences and working on great brands and great products and working with great people with good practices the amount that you can talk about is often far more significant than in a company that doesn't have that even if they give you a a lofty title for whatever reason yeah if you're to think back to the junior days of starting out as a, a peer or a PM, where would you suggest someone can a, get started within that? But are there any key skills or things that you think would be a useful thing to help grow their career? Yeah, something that really helped me on my journey was getting really strong at comms and stakeholder comms and really focusing on developing that as a muscle. Particularly when you start out in product, you don't realize the impact of giving proactive up-to-date updates on where things are at and how things are progressing and what you've been learning. I've learned over the years over-updating is always better than under-updating and it really helps people that you might not even know. They start to build trust, it really manages their expectations, it sometimes uncovers misalignment if you're constantly posting updates and someone says hey that, like, that's not right or it can be really valuable especially working asynchronously or remote. But I think particularly as a new product person it's a really good way to start to build a profile and start to build visibility across an organization as well and I think that's those things are more noted than you might realize when you're starting out. I struggle with finding the time to do that and I don't know if you've got any tips on so there's I suppose these different types of comms you're doing downwards upwards sideways outwards 
have you got any thoughts on the priority of those or regularity of those? Within our portfolio, our product crew have a pretty clear map of who our stakeholders are in terms of external to the portfolio, leadership within the portfolio and team and direct people that we're working with. So I think mapping out those level of stakeholders thinking a little bit about what kind of information they might want to receive and how often is probably a useful gauge. Maybe once a quarter, you do something broader, external of zero about your product. And then maybe that more portfolio leadership level, you might do something once a month on outcomes and how you're hitting them and what you've learned. And then at the team level, it might be more frequent. And I think one of the things you touched on there was taking the time to think about what they might need as well, developing that empathy for their position. I like that. The other thing that... Yeah, exactly. The thing that you touched on around info and sort of what's in those updates, you mentioned focusing on outcomes and how you're tracking towards them being a key part of those types of comms, as opposed to the standard, what have we worked on? What are we working on next type of updates? So for me, there's a really interesting balance to strike there around how do you actually put information that's useful into those updates. Yeah, I've been clear with the outcome, clear on that, you know, if you're using OKRs, you can kind of talk to, this is the outcome, this is the KR we're trying to move, this is the initiative that's moving it, here's progress on that. And even at this point, highlighting key risks and what you're doing to mitigate them, I think from a stakeholder perspective, it means that no one out there has to go, oh, should I have thought about this? You're proactively saying, we see this risk and we're working on it. That helps build a lot of like trust, I think, in the person providing the update, making sure they've thought about all of the other functions and, and people and anything like that. That's, yeah, really helpful, especially linking back to that risk mitigation. And then, you know, obviously they can deep dive into that if they've got further questions, but having the, the overview there. Awesome. And you've had so many different experiences and roles along your journey. Is there, what would you consider your greatest accomplishment? I think I would have to say helping to establish and lead the product crew that we have within Phil's Org, the Zero Man EP portfolio today. We have a really, really talented crew of product practitioners and anything I can do to bolster that or support them or build culture or improve the work, I feel very proud to be doing that. And I look back at what we've achieved in the past couple of years and I'm very proud of, of everyone in the team. It's a very good feeling. Again, back to the people, right? <laughs> yes, um, yeah. Yeah, And in terms of coaching, is there anything that stands out for you in that space in particular? Because moving especially from a PO into a PM role or into that more senior role, how did you develop those skills of coaching and, and have there been anything that's been particularly tough that you've learned? Yeah, it was coaching in my previous role. So coming into zero, it was still coaching people, which was not too much of a change there, especially as a new people lead, having consistent tools and frameworks is always really useful to rely on. If you've got like a bit of a framework for giving feedback or a regular cadence for doing that, those kind of things definitely help. And being very prepared for conversations and not just going into the ad hoc has served me well. Catch-ups can be really just fun and informal and ad hoc and we kind of go with the flow but if there are specific topics that they want to cover off I think pre-work thinking about the conversation thinking about what they want out of it and kind of preparing for it has got me through some more difficult situations or conversations that might have been awkward or challenging if I hadn't kind of done the pre-work in advance. Yeah that's really good to hear and I think the coaching part of it is actually a huge part of the role and that takes focus and effort 
to get the most out of your team and as as you've just said build a really great product team that doesn't happen by accident right yeah there are some good tools that we lean on like feedback self-reflection focus areas goals to move towards that feel like we've got a really good picture of who's focused on what from a personal growth perspective and that's always just top of mind if you see an opportunity pop up oh that really aligns with like x's growth maybe i should put them forward for this so really uncovering where their strengths are things that they need to consider and what they're focused on means opportunities kind of jump out at you for them as they pop up which is good you know it's really good to be able to support people in that way as well and to be supported that way myself all right i'll move us on to the rapid fire questions have you got a book or an article that you'd recommend some books that I really have enjoyed in the past and I've got really inspired by that I often share with my team is one is How Bad Do You Want It by Matt Fitzgerald. So this is a real mind of a meta book. It's based on sports psychology and it uses a bunch of case studies about professional sports athletes and it's very inspiring. Yeah, it's a really cool read. Also, awesome audiobook. He narrates it himself. So recommend that one for sure. No yeah. Rules Rules, which is Reed Hastings, the Netflix founder. It's a fun read. It's a pretty easy read. You can pick it up, put it down. Really, really interesting, I think, just to get insights into other tech companies and how they operate. And third favorite is, I think it's called Bad Blood, the Theranos story about Elizabeth Holmes. Oh, it's very, very good. She was a CEO of a tech startup that took tiny, tiny blood samples and analyzed your blood. But she was essentially a big fraud. There's a podcast called The Dropout and the book is called Bad Blood. And it's just a wild tech industry story there. <laughs> it's very, very fun to read and listen to. Wow. Okay, I need to add that to my list. Never yeah, heard of it, but you sold me. Yeah. <laughs> it's very, very fascinating. <laughs> nice. Obviously, the Zero Product Journeys podcast is on your list, but do you have yes. any other product or just podcasts in general, actually, that you listen to? A lot of true crime, like the soothing sounds of serial killers as I go to sleep is always nice. How I Built This is another cool tech one. Yeah, there's a few good episodes. I think you like the founders of Airbnb, founders of WordPress, I think WordPress, founders of Bumble. Yeah, that's a good one as well. I always really enjoy that. Got some good companies on there. Awesome. And the obviously the dropout or the one the one. Oh yes. I think it's, it's, it's like a podcast is called the dropout. Yeah. Yeah. Adding that one too. What are you most grateful for? Whenever I'm asked this, I always think my health. Very grateful for my health and never to be underestimated. So yeah, that's always top of mind for me. There you go. And to bring us home, is there anything else that you want to share? Any calls to actions or takeaways? I'm not sure if I'm allowed to do this. It's a very shameless plug, but I'll give it a crack. If there are any product donors or any future product donors out there, <laughs> I have a really, really great opportunity opening up one of my teams. I would love to chat to anyone in Auckland or Melbourne that might be interested. So... Um, yeah, I will use this call to action to drop something in there. Awesome. Why not? Definitely keeping that in. Um, to, to ask a further question on top of that, though, why should they be interested? Why should they come work for you, Stacey? Connected workplaces in particular is like a high growth. It's a really interesting part of Zero, Solving customer needs beyond accounting, standing up a whole new platform designed to look at how our small business owners that are employing businesses look after their employees it's a really great team it's a really great leadership team would highly highly recommend it this product in particular is a high growth product it's really complex there's a lot of like gnarly customer problems to sink your teeth into a lot of customers and user data that you can really focus on so it's a really a very fun space i'd be going after it myself <laughs> <laughs> there you go great answer 
Thank you, Stacey. 